And so we open with this pretty kind of popular, kind of famous opening line of judge not, that you be not judged. Now, what does that conjure up for you? How have you heard that utilized or used in the world? And this is an actual question. This is like, I do want responses. Like, what is the immediate thought? Yeah, some justification for action, yeah. What was that? Like a lawyer judge? Is that what you're thinking? Because you are a lawyer. That would be the first place your mind should go. (laughs) What else? We're going to be quiet in this first verse today. Um, Yeah, I think for many of us, I think um, we've heard it. And it's usually when anybody's like having like a hard conversation and anybody calls out stuff going on in your life, um, or it's used for, um, so I'll see different groups um, in, in America put, make billboards, I'll say judge not, um, and use it as a platform to sort of condone just about anything. I think previously uh, we, we existed as the church in America that was really heavy on the judgmental side. Um, it's probably uh, functioned with a little heavier accountability, and I think we at times have swung in sort of a, a kind of postmodern way to utilizing this phrase to just about not speak into anybody's life and to kind of have a sort of laissez-faire idea of things. And you get to a group together, and at some point, no one seems to sometimes know what to make of this opening teaching, that it causes more frustration around this idea of judgment. It's almost like it's other things that Jesus teaches that are confusing or impossible, like love your enemy and stuff like that. And we sometimes lump it into that category of going, well, I don't know what to do exactly with judge not, so I'll just put it over here. And we've been walking through this Sermon on the Mount. We've been walking through all the pieces of it and um, kind of doing larger chunks at a time, which I think is important to sort of understand the context of what Jesus is doing. Because Matthew has, I mean, we don't know if Jesus necessarily preached this three chapters all in a chunk together, or Matthew compiled it together um, as a like manifesto of Jesus' teachings. We're, we're good either way. Uh, but um, they're, they're, these, pieces, these, are, these pieces of the sermon are stacked in context for a reason. And it does open with the Beatitudes. It does open with this invitation of saying, look, however you think blessing works, the, the, the blessed are sometimes even more upside down than you think. That it might be the, the meek that are actually the closest to God or, or at least closest to the kingdom. And the suffering or the poor. And then we get uh, Jesus move into uh, teaching on the law and, and how ultimately um, that all that God has intended things to be, all they intended with the Torah, all they intended with the prophets, it's ultimately going to be captured in the life of Jesus. We will see Jesus put everything that God desires for humanity on display in his life and in his death. And Jesus will go on to teach what that actually looks like. So you've heard it said, these things. You have, you've heard these teachings about what murder actually looks like. And, but, but Jesus will start speaking towards the renovation of the heart, that there's a heart issue in it, particularly related and fulfilled in how we actually interact with each other. In, in that message, there was so much about these teachings are about people. And so much of the Sermon on the Mount is about people and how we interact with people. And then he would start teaching on generosity and community and forgiveness of others and what that looks like. And then uh, move into a teaching on this good eye versus bad eye and how we actually see the world. Do we see the world as good? Do we see the world as God providing and operate out of hope, trusting that God is enough or not? And that's where we kind of move into the text today. So verse 1, judge not that you not be ju- or not, you be not judged. For at the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged with the measure you use and it will be measured to you. Now, there's a lot of scriptures on judgment, 
we're going to do a very quick flyover of the New Testament on some of these verses because we got to make sense of, okay, do we never judge? What judgment can we do? What do we not? So James 4, 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 1 Corinthians 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore acquitted. It is the judge who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Okay, what do we have so far? Don't judge, right? John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, for what have I to do with judging outsiders is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits or judge the spirits to see whether they are from God. Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets and ultimately judge their fruit, as we will get to in two weeks. James 2, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So we are to judge right um, with mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we have Texas say, don't judge. We have Texas say, judge, right? They both exist in Scripture. So what do we do with this? And, and, and in the Greek, and the, the word there, the simple word for, for judgment that exists is the word krino. It's a, it's a wonderful Greek word. Same sort of parallels in, in Hebrew or Aramaic it has a very similar usage of this idea of just separation. Um, it's, not, it's a neutral word. It's, it's an idea that you would take two things and be able to separate them into categories, whatever it is. And so I think there's three ways that this commonly gets used in Scripture. First one, uh, related to, to Jonathan's answer, is in judicial decisions. Now, God has given judges in the past. God upholds law and thinks law is a good thing. So is God saying judges should not do their job in a judicial process, right? He's not saying that, so it's very clear. Um, that, that seems unnecessary. The next is judging by discernment, that there's ways of living and there's things that exist in this world. There's things that are wise, there's things that are foolish. There's things that are healthy and unhealthy. There's good actions, there's bad actions, there's good desires, there's bad act- desires. Is God saying we should not have any judgment over those things? No. Discernment is a perfectly legitimate thing throughout the New Testament. Now, there's also a type of judging that separates people into individual categories. That starts separating out what people are or are not. I think Luke actually helps us a little bit. I don't always like pulling from uh, other gospel writers, but Luke, uh, when Jesus teaches on this uh, in Luke 6.37, he says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. And, and he moves into forgiven, and there's parallels that keep going between the two lines for then on out. And so the parallels that we actually find in, judge, in, in Luke are parallels between judgment and condemnation. And I think that captures actually quite a bit, I think, of what we are going to see. That gives us understanding that it's a judgment that condemns other people, that ultimately finds people into different categories. So we're going to talk about the bad crino first. We'll talk about the good crino in a second. Now, separating people into categories of this is a good person and this is a bad person. This is an orthodox, this is a heretic. This is the right person, this is the wrong person. This is the hero, and this is the villain. That at some point, when we start doing that, we start putting actual people, image bearers of Jesus himself, image bearers of God, the creator, and start going, this is a bad person, and this is a good person. I think ultimately, that is what Jesus wants to critique, that system, which is a self-serving system. 
(laughs) We often filter what we think is good and true for us from our perspective, from our experience, from our background, from where our strengths and weaknesses lie, and understand the world that way, and often rule against other people in our favor. And we get a little boost, a little dopamine hit when we do this. It's fuel. That's why outrage is a wonderful thing uh, for most people. It starts triggering um, some, some uh, positive uh, feedback in our system, and there's a deep psychosis in it that, that we feel like we benefit, that we're not neutral observers, and we interact the world with that way. We look at someone's outside, we look at someone's experience, we look at what someone did, and ultimately render a judgment of their worth. And we start placing ourselves in superiority to them. And this is the mechanism, I think, that Jesus is condemning, the sort of ranking systems of people. And hear me, the church is just known for it. This is a bit of the history of the church. And Jesus is trying to get it thrown out the window. At some point, the only judgment we have of someone else's worth is that they were worth dying for. That's the judgment we get to have. And that's probably about it. And Jesus uses this metaphor here of scales. And so um, when someone would purchase something, they would... um, to weigh it out, they would have a scale at, at, the, at the shop, the little shop there in Jerusalem, and uh, they had these little weights that were measures, uh, and they would measure against the weight. And um, it was actually a, a bit of a historical practice at the time that um, they, would, they would actually overpour. Uh, they would actually be generous to make sure that they were not cheating their fellow brother and sister. And so um, it, was, it was a common practice to actually overweigh in generosity towards others. And I think Jesus is picking up on that metaphor here of saying, you you should have a generous spirit in how you actually interact with people in the world and give people the the benefit of the doubt, give people the extra measure of things. Because hear me, when when I I love to judge everyone else's behavior, but I only judge my own intention, right? In my heart, I didn't mean to do that, right? You, You got it wrong. I didn't mean to do that. But on their part, it's the opposite. Have you seen their kids? They must be really bad parents. Right? We, we tend to do that. And we want everyone else to give us the benefit of the doubt about our motives and reasons, but we don't want to extend it the same way. We, we look at other people's outside and render judgment about their worth. And uh, there's a fascinating story. Chuck Swindoll tells this amazing story. So he, Chuck Swindoll is a, a famous Christian leader um, and uh, has, has a long story, prison ministry, other stuff like that. He was speaking at a large conference. And there was a guy in the front row who was like constantly nodding off during his talk. And at some point, Chuck's like, man, this, this guy doesn't want to be here. And um, I think he'd interacted uh, with the guy very briefly on the front end. And um, he's like, he, he's not even staying awake. He does, must not care about any of this kind of stuff. And after he had given the talk, he, he came up and talked to his wife. And she stayed in the crowd. That's what Chuck writes. She stayed in the crowd after her husband had left. She asked if she could speak with me for a few minutes. I figured she wanted to talk about how unhappy she was living with a man who didn't have the same interests in spiritual things as she. How wrong I was. She said, she said their being there was his idea. It had been his final wish. I didn't understand. She informed me that he had terminal cancer and only had weeks to live. And at his request, they attended the conference where I was speaking, even though the medication he was taking for pain made him very sleepy, something that greatly embarrassed him. He loves the Lord, she said, and you are his favorite Bible teacher. He wanted to be here to meet you and hear from you no matter what. I was sincerely stunned. She thanked me for the week and left. I stood there all alone, as deeply rebuked as I have ever been. I judged my brother, and I was as wrong as I could possibly have been. And I think this is, this is what Jesus is really after. The ability to sort of sit there and go, 
oh, they must, not, they must be this kind of person. They must act this way. They must be like this. And we only know, I mean, I know it's a goofy metaphor, but we only know about this much of the iceberg of someone's intentions, motives, heart. We know our hearts all day long. So we can sit there and say, oh, I intended for the best. But that's not how uh, we judge other people. There's actually a, a group, um, I was reading a story about a group in Israel, and, th- and they, they meet regularly to talk through a scenario and to think of the best case solutions of what the person could have possibly, what have caused them that. And, and so without being too far-fetched, to be really practical, um, like, oh, maybe, maybe they were running really late that day. Maybe they had just gotten really, really bad news. Maybe, so they would practice that just to be able to, to, to function in a way that is not doling out judgment on the kind of person we are interacting with. But then there's good credo, and I think Jesus actually talks about this. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, can there be a speck in someone else's eye? Yes. And is there some role we play in taking the speck out of your brother's eye? Okay, cool. So for particularly the younger crowd in this room, there's room to admonish and correct people. And scripture allows for it. Cool. All right. But what does this actually look like? Discernment is probably the best word for this. The separating of things and actions as opposed to the actual separating of people. This is the good crino. It's able to look and say, that's true, or that's false, or that's wise, and that's unwise. And it's not the same thing as deeming someone good or bad. If we see someone acting unwisely or living in false ways, if we're going to use the standard of judgment in that, then the same standard has to function to ourselves. Now, the speck is on whose eye? What does Jesus use as a, like the noun there? A brother, or a brother and sister. It can be interchangeable. <clears throat> Throughout Matthew, whenever we encounter the idea of a brother, um, particularly in Matthew, it is almost always a sort of common disciple. It will be defined as it goes, but it's this idea of, of other people who are a part of what we are participating in following Jesus. Now, Scott McKnight uh, speaks of sort of how God loves. Uh, he's a theologian out of um, Chicago. He speaks about how God loves and, and says God's love, God's function towards us tends to be two, two ways. One is he has a covenantal commitment to us. And what that means is he is committed to, to be to us, with us, and for us. That, that throughout Scripture, when it speaks of God's love, that is essential, this sort of steadfast love. It is with us, to us, and for us. And the second part of that is that God is also committed to loving us towards maturity, towards Christ-likeness. So not only does he love us and committed to us, but he loves us with a process or a direction for us. Now, the order of those two are extremely important. That God showcases his steadfast love, and then the transformation happens. And the same is true of us. When people are convinced that you are committed to them, that you're for them, that you're with them, no matter what, then loving them towards a direction, speaking towards something in their lives, can feel like love then. But if you lead with the torting, if you lead a conversation with someone that you don't know that well, and say, hey, I see this in your life. You and I aren't really friends, but this is what I notice. For most people, that does not feel like love. Right? That's how... That's how community actually functions. It's met with mistrust or feels like an agenda or feels like uh, something else. And Paul speaks of judgment starting with the church. And in two of those verses I quoted, it starts inside the church. Yeah, we have a whole cottage industry that are quote-unquote the church 
that start with judging the world uh, as opposed to judging the church, a direct violation of the New Testament teaching here. Um, but the function of the church in the New Testament, hear me, I don't want to missay this, but the function of the church in the New Testament is not primarily how the church can transform the world, but it's how the church can be transformed into the image of Jesus. <clears throat> it's not about transforming the world. I mean, that's a subcategory, but it's about people being transformed. That's what the church is supposed to be about. Now remember, this is often smaller house churches, right? I mean, yes, I know the megachurches always quote this. Yes, when Peter preached, there were 3,000 people converted. But you know, Passover ended right after that, and everybody back to their countries. And so it wasn't like they suddenly had a 3,000-person church in Jerusalem. And so most churches were 30 people, 40 people. They were meeting in houses. They were not very big. So you had life together. It was an essential part of, of the early church, is that you are going to interact with these people who have likely been kicked out of their families, whose businesses are suffering, and these are the people that you're going to do life together with. And the practice of good crino, and I will speak personally, in my life has always come for people who know me and love me best when given the real permission to critique, right? Like Trey and Sarah call me out on stuff all the time. Of, of where I'm going awry, where I'm acting fool, whatever it is, and are able to speak into that. Because guess what? We have developed a relationship over time to be able to do that really well. And, and that's, that's helpful. It's really good. It's really healthy. Now, that, that might not be true of others, right? Right? Um, I don't know, I'm trying to find someone else in the room. Uh, Travis. I love Travis. Travis and I get along really well. But Travis and I haven't had the journey of deep relationship and stuff like that. So if Travis were to come up to me and go, hey, I feel like you're acting this way, I'd be like, I don't think you know me well enough to be able to say that. <laughs> Versus Trey. If Trey said that to me, I'll receive that very differently. There's relationship. There's depth. There's, there's pieces there. And, and I think that's what, ultimately, when Jesus starts talking about the speck and the log, that's what we're going to do. Now, hear me. I'm going to, I'm going to push even more. There's always talk about how we make disciples, and, and there's always ways, there's always thoughts on how best to make disciples. Now, I would say 95% of discipleship happens in this practice. Because we, like, first century, we'd be the size of a megachurch. If we, were, if we were a first century church, we'd be kind of mega um, for their standards. And that is exactly why we have things like life groups, right? Because we can't do 200 adults in life together. It's just not going to happen. And most of the discipleship instructions from Jesus and from Paul, most of them, are a ton of one another commands to each other. Say, hey, you want to grow as a disciple? Go practice all these one another's together and start living like Christ. And yes, there's information download and stuff like that too, but it's not primarily a classroom. It's regular interactions with each other. And this is one of the primary goals of life groups. And so we don't enter in with, what am I getting out of this? And why is it not meeting my needs? But it's establishing the very place where we're going to start learning to serve one another, or bearing one another's burdens, or being patient with one another, showing hospitality to one another, and the list goes on and on and on. All of it, yes, in Christ, but it is the greatest incubator of Christ-likeness is actually intimate community. You want to become more like Christ. You sit down with a bunch of people who are not necessarily going to be naturally your best friends, and you start figuring out what it's going to look like. Like, that is really where development happens. And if you're like, you know what, I'm tired of serving and showing hospitality, hear me, that's almost like saying, I'm tired of doing the things Jesus told me to do. And I know it sounds harsh, but hear me, that is the primary way of discipleship, I think, in the church. Like, I, I read Paul's letters, and it's like, all right, here's how you guys are going to grow in maturity. Start doing all these one another's together. And then you'll grow into the full measure of what Christ can be. So how do we approach it? This is where he uses that incredible metaphor of a log and a speck. 
and this is pretty simple to summarize, that we would walk into every situation where we think we are the biggest sinner in the room. Now imagine that. How, open question. How would community look different if everybody in this room walked into every situation going, I'm probably the biggest sinner in this room? For real. It would, be, it would feel pretty good, probably, right? There would be no jockeying for position. Everyone would probably walk in with a spirit of humility. Everyone would walk in towards, hey, like, I, I want to honor these other people because uh, I, I know my own heart, and I, I don't know. Maybe they'll honor me, but that's not my starting point. I, I just want to show honor to other people. I want to serve them. I wanna, and, and it starts with this othering. So not only is the focus of the of inside the church and not the world, but the focus and work is on me and not you. Like, if I see a speck in your eye, what do I have to first notice about myself? That I'm the worst hypocrite in the room. That I am the biggest sinner in the room. Known community where we come together and everybody comes in going, all right, I, I assume my struggles are deeper than yours. And then you can come in and actually talk. So I can, I'd be able to say, hey, this is a really bad blind spot for me, and I've learned, and, and other people have admonished me, and I'm able to see it now, and, and, and I've really struggled with this blind spot, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing the same pattern in your life. That, that would be received very different, right? If it starts with owning the log, if it starts with saying, hey, I really struggle with some of my anger, uh, and, and sometimes it gets the best of me, and I've got this going on, uh, and I really struggle with this too, but man, how are you talking to your wife right now? It's just not cool. And that would be a very different approach. Now hear me, as a pastor, I always enjoy when people ask, hey, when are you going to preach against this sin or that sin? It's like, okay, well, I'll preach on that as soon as I'm done preaching about your sin. So what is your biggest sin? And we'll preach about that for the next series. And then I'll preach about the pet issues you want me to preach about. <clears throat> I love the Galatians 6.1. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, are, you who are spiritual should restore them. How? in a spirit of gentleness. And I'm, I'm afraid too often the, the church hijacks Ephesians 4, which is speaking the truth in love, which, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into how to interpret that text well, but I think it misses the point that we are to have this reciprocity and gentleness in how we actually interact with each other. And we get phrases like love the sinner and hate the sin, but I, think, I actually would argue Jesus blows that up. Jesus says, love the sinner and hate your sin. That's how you should live. You live that way, it'll work out. And this is the beauty of like why recovery groups work so well. Because you get a whole bunch of people who are struggling with various addictions and things like that, and they all sit down together. And guess what they all know? Everyone in the room struggles with the same thing. And their struggling has caused destruction enough in, in their lives that they have shown up to that. And then they can actually speak into each other's lives and encourage each other freely. They don't have to hide. No one's sitting in judgment over another person. And, to, and I would argue the church should be like a giant recovery group from sin. And yet we struggle to actually live that way. But let's keep moving. And then there's this word about dogs and pigs and pearls. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So this is a fun little teaching. This is where my nerdy historical context stuff matters. Um, so, dogs and pigs. Often metaphors for pagan world, pagan nations. Uh, we will see this again in Matthew. Matthew will interact with a Gentile woman who uh, he also refers to as a dog. But before you start saying that's just so mean, um, I, I would argue uh, these sometimes get used almost how Yanks and rednecks sometimes get used. Now, you can say Yankees and rednecks in a way that is completely derogatory, 
Or you can use it in a way that's like just descriptive of where people are from or the kind of people that they are. That's totally legitimate, right? It's both. Now, it's context and how you deliver it and stuff like that that matters whether Yanks and Rednecks is, is derogatory or not. And so I would argue Jesus isn't necessarily trying to be derogatory. I mean, it, it can be used that way, but I don't think that's what's happening here. And then it speaks of holy things and pearls. Um, so uh, in re- sort of ancient rabbinic thought, pearl is actually um, a, a, a teaching or wisdom from a rabbi. Um, their teachings would be called stringing pearls together when, when a rabbi would teach. So the Sermon on the Mount could actually be considered a string of pearls that are being built. And so um, there's a bunch of ancient rabbis that refer to uh, the teaching as, as pearls, as, as wisdom, as things to be unpacked. So what is Jesus actually saying then? I would say that Jesus is saying that people who claim to speak for God sort of cannot take and throw their morality before people who have not agreed to follow it. And this may seem like a no-brainer, but I'm telling you, we religious people do it all the time, and we love to speak about our views of righteousness and morality, good and bad, light and dark, right and wrong, and we expect the world to listen. Why would they? An Israelite can't take the Mosaic Law and throw it in front of a bunch of Gentiles and say, you have to do this or you don't have to do this, because the Gentiles haven't agreed to the covenant of that world. It's the same with our neighbors. Have they agreed to God's word as a measuring stick for their own lives? Have they fallen under the covenant of God, been filled with the Spirit, and actually empowered to be obedient to the things that God has called them to? No. Again, this statement's not meant to carry a derogatory tone, but we cannot throw your teachings before swine and expect them to enjoy it. It's quite the opposite, and the swine might actually respond with hostility. Um, I'll get into more controversial territory. So, how then does the Great Commission... I was going to block this out. But how then does the Great Commission of evangelism actually fit into all this then? If, if we are not supposed to interact with the Gentiles in the way that we throw our teachings in front of them, what does that look like? Here's, here's the hot water. As I read the New Testament more and more and more, I just don't see the mandate to go and have awkward conversations with total strangers. Uh, hear me. The only time the church is ever actually commanded to proclaim is when they take communion together. It's the only time. First Corinthians. The only time the church has said, you will proclaim the gospel and when you do this and until, his, until his death is over. Now, we get proclamation all the time. We get the stories of Acts and everything like that. So I'm not saying don't do that. But I think there's a community aspect of what, Jesus is, or what Paul is after when he speaks to the church about how we proclaim the gospel, that we would foster ways of living and being in community that is actually attractive to the world. And I'm not interested in conjuring up God talk all the time, because the minute I think someone has the agenda for me, the minute someone sits down and goes, I need to, I need to sell you on something, is the minute I'm not interested, right? And I think too much of the world feels like Christians act like timeshare salesmen. <laughs> and who loves a timeshare salesman? Nobody. I hate those things. It feels awful. Um, but my belief is that if we love, serve, and are committed to people in the world, these sorts of conversations and opportunities actually just happen naturally. And it's more than lifestyle evangelism. It's something so deeper and more holistic than that. And the times I've had fruitful gospel sharing is usually in relationship to a person that I did not have a set agenda for. I don't feel the responsibility to conjure up Jesus in relationship with strangers, but I've just given up. And instead, do other things. Like, be a joyful person on an airplane. Right? Go do that. And go be a good tipper. And, and ask questions of your server at the table, right? Like, live in a way that's just be an agent of blessing, and it starts stir, stirring up questions, and it starts stirring up responses, particularly in relationship. It's like our neighbors are like, why do you have like 20 adults and 20 kids to your house every week? What are you guys doing over there? 
okay, let's talk about that. <laughs> right? And last thing I'll say, for so much of my adult life, I was taught, here's the method. You, you take everybody through this four spiritual law tract or this Roman road, whatever it may be, bridge analogy, whatever. You find a means to go through it because the stakes are too high and they're all burning in hell unless you do. But I read the New Testament, I do not see that posture in how we were to share the gospel. I just don't. I don't see it ever motivated by, hey, they're going to burn in hell if you don't do this. And I don't see it ever being a one-size-fits-all approach. Like, when Paul's in Athens, man, he has a different approach than when Paul's preaching to a bunch of Jews. He just does. It's very different. It's not, here's, here's the four spiritual laws that you all need to hear in this moment. It's, it's contextual. It is oh, informed. And at the end of the day, there is an office of evangelism. Maybe Paul just is functioning out of that. Anyways. I doubt the elders fully all agree with me on that, so just take it as Chris's advice on best life. So, um, We don't have a position paper on evangelism, so I'm safe to go wherever I want. Uh, <laughs> so where does Jesus go next? So to recap, what body part have we been talking about actually for a, f- a few sermons now? Eyes, good eyes, bad eyes. And that included this week, right? Get the plank out of your own eye, go do those sort of things. And so it's coming, once again, off this conversation of how we actually see the world. Do we see it with a good eye? That we have a good, generous God who knows what we need, who is not withholding from us. We're not functioning out a scarcity mindset because that leads to other problems like worry and anxiety. And not only that, but if we think there's not enough to go around, if we're worried about ourselves, that tends to lead to what? To judgment of others, right? They're on the inside, or they're on the outside, I'm on the inside, they're bad, I'm good. Now, what is the opposite of judgment? Like if someone's standing before you and they've done something wrong, what's the, what's the opposite of judging them? Mercy and forgiveness, right? That would be the practice. Now, why, why don't we forgive people? It's not hypothetical. Like why, why do we struggle to forgive people sometimes? Pride, heart, bitterness towards the people. Yeah, there's still pain there. Yeah. There's some, some depth and, and they're all hitting around it. I think sometimes we don't offer the forgiveness because we're also worried of the transactional level that they're not going to receive what they actually deserve. And some level, if I forgive them, I'm approving of what they did. They're never actually going to get the judgment that they deserve for the, how they've wronged. But we want the transaction. We still want that, that equality piece to it. So where does Jesus go? Verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock. And by the way, the chapter breaks don't actually exist in the original text. So, or not the chapter, the little title breaks. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And there are some that would actually argue, Jesus hasn't said a word about prayer up to this point. And so this is actually about prayer, but I think that for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks is, is open. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask? So I don't think Jesus just randomly pivots. Hey, judgment and don't judge and uh, make sure that you don't teach the Gentiles in a way that they're not ready for, whatever it is. Oh, by the way, let me talk about prayer right here. He has been building and building and building this whole relational context piece of what it looks like to actually function in a world where we trust him. We trust him with our anxieties and our stresses. We trust him with our money. We trust him with judgment. And so he's like, I would argue Jesus is turning here and building a strand of pearls and speaking about comparing ourselves and speaking about worrying about the sins of others and struggling with forgiveness. And he says, and he says no, you turn to the only one who actually has true crino. You turn to the only one who actually has the ability to sort out judgment and not judgment. 
good and bad, the, the true right and wrong. Because he's the only one that gets to do that, right? Like when we get to the sheep and the goats, it's not like Jesus saying, hey, disciples, go sort out the sheep and the goats. Jesus sorts out the sheep and the goats. It's his call. He could do that. He's the only one that could do that. I love it. As Willard says, he says, I may get angry at sin, but God is the only one who I trust to channel his anger correctly. And I think that's what the instruction is actually to do. So be generous. Worry will kill your generosity. Do not judge the worth of other people whom you think deserve punishment. Instead, ask God to do the right thing. Because he knows how to give perfect gifts. He knows how to sort this all out. Trust God to make the right thing. Stop worrying about being generous to others, especially to dogs. Stop worrying and be generous to others, especially to dogs and pigs, because God is good. And whatever the outcome, we can trust him with it. It's less about getting what we pray for, but praying for what God wants to do in the situation itself. Because so much of the Sermon on the Mount is about what? Going back to the call and response to a previous sermon. It's about what? People, right? It's all about people. And where does he go by verse 12? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. To circle back even to the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, you want to fulfill all that the law and the prophets has actually instructed you to do? Well, figure out how to start loving other people and leave, the, leave all the judgments into the hand of God. That's what Paul would say. For the commandments are summed up in the word, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. Right? It's Paul in Romans. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Or Jesus will go on in Matthew 22, greatest commandment, love God, the Shema. All, and every rabbi would have quoted that as the greatest. And then Jesus, as a filter of how we should interpret the rest of it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now we would function out of that. Now you may be wondering why you have an index card sitting on your chair up to this point. Um, and it's not to write down announcements that we didn't have cards for you before. Um, but, but I want to take us just through a, a bit of an exercise um, to, to respond to, to a topic like this. Because I, I believe this is an important passage. I think the church sometimes skews so heavily one way or the other, where there's, it's heavy judgmental and there's no relationship and there's bad crino happening all the time um, and it's a real struggle. Or the church gets into the place where it's like no one, no one actually develops a relationship and calls each other out for, for just... Um, missing the mark and, and falling short and able to admonish and correct and to work through it together as a family. And, and I think there's a, a beautiful middle road. Here's what I wanted us to do. I actually want us to work on the bad crino first because I think that, that one's more dangerous. And with the cards in front of you, and we've fished out all the pens out of the back of the seat, so you should have a, a pen um, available for you. Uh, I want you to name someone. Name someone that you judge. And... And, and perhaps it's a representative of a people. I mean, you can be like, you know what, I judge all Republicans, I'm going to write Donald Trump, or I judge all Democrats, I'm going to write Joe Biden, um, or Nancy Pelosi, or whoever you want to write. Maybe it's a, a relative. Maybe, maybe it's a sister that drives you crazy, or a parent that just, oh man, you, you see their call, and you're like, I did not want to answer that. And you're constantly in judgment of them. And you're constantly categorizing them. Man, they're just a bad person. And, and I want you to write their name down. And as soon as you've done that, and, and this will all tie into communion, but um, I, I want us to take a moment and, and be silent. And I want us to pray this over these people. Um, that we're able to, to take those that, 
I think Jesus is telling us to not judge, at least the, the way we've been judging. And, and I want us to pray, say, whatever. Donald Trump is created in God's image and is therefore has incredible worth. Or whoever. Or my sister who is created in God's image and therefore has incredible worth. And then we would take a moment and literally pray a blessing over them. If Jesus has already called us love as our enemies just a couple texts ago, that this has to be part of our practice of how we do that. Are we able to stop looking at people as others and start going, right, how? How, God, do I start seeing it this way? And I would say it starts here. And this can be really difficult for a few of you because you're judging people who have wronged you probably very, very deeply. And I'm sympathetic to that. But at some point, we want God to do that heart renovation. Maybe it's a spouse that's just knives and daggers to your heart every time they open their mouth. But yet, they're created in God's image. And therefore, I have incredible worth. So when you stop, pray a blessing. I'll give us about a minute, and then we'll move into a communion. God, help us to have a good eye. To see people as you would see them. To see this world as you would see it. To trust that you are good, and you are just, and you are right. And that ultimate judgment is yours, not ours. God, may we repent in any ways that we have put people into categories or wholesale identified people as good and bad, right and wrong, heroes, villains, whatever it may be. God, may we step into the few places where you do give us freedom and instruction in relationship with our brothers and sisters to be able to not only own our sin, but to be able to point out specs, to be able to keep pointing each other towards you be able to speak into each other's lives in a way that points in a good direction that you are better. You are better than anything we may be straying our eyes to go look at. God, um, may we be on our knees with it all, knowing that you're the giver of good gifts, knowing that you know how to dole out what we need in any given moment that every situation around us probably has more context and every person probably has more behind their decisions and um, why they're acting the way they do and you see their hearts. We, we can't. So God, we, we pray and we ask you to be the right and good judge. Just help us to love our neighbor then as we would love ourselves, as we would clothe and feed and seek shelter for ourselves, may we do the same to our brothers and sisters around us and our neighbors. I pray this your name. Amen.